Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Today's reading is from 2 Timothy, uh, chapter 3, verse 14, through chapter 4, verse 5. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is God's word. Amen. All right, well, I invite you to keep your Bibles open to the book of 2 Timothy as we pray together this morning. Father, as we open your word today, our desire is to hear your voice. And so we pray that that is what would happen in the next 30 or so minutes, that you would speak, that we would be edified by wisdom that is revealed in Scripture. And that our joy in your love for us and your merciful sacrifice for us would be greater. We pray these things, Lord, in the name of your Son. Amen. There are many things in life, I'm sure that you know, that are challenging but worth the effort. Years ago, I ran my first and last marathon. And while I was getting ready for it, I was almost ready to quit several times. In fact, I was months into the training process before I told anyone other than my wife that I was doing this because I was reasonably confident that I would quit at some point, and I, I didn't want people to know that I was trying something and then bailing on it. I remember one specific moment when I was out for a long run on a Saturday in February, and it was cold. I don't remember specifically how cold, but I do remember that as I was running along, I was listening to a podcast on my phone, and it shut off because it was too cold for my phone to stay on. And I remember thinking, wow, if it's too cold for my phone to stay powered on, what am I doing out here? <laughs> and then a little while later, I, I kept going. A little while later, I tried to, tried to take a drink from the water bottle that I was carrying with me, and it was frozen solid. <laughs> and I started thinking, is there something wrong with my brain? What am I doing out here? I was pretty close to giving up that day and on many other days, but in the end, I stumbled along, and eventually I dragged myself across the finish line, and looking back, I'm glad that I did. It was hard, one of the hardest things I've ever done, but in the end, it was worth it. This morning, as we continue to look at the core commitments that Westgate Church has committed herself to, we acknowledge that each of them come as a challenge to us. They are all aspirational. None of these things come naturally or without the sanctifying work of the Spirit and the day-by-day putting one foot in front of the other effort that bring them about. But we are committed to pursuing them because ultimately we know that they are worth the effort. 
And we are preaching through them as the beginning of this, with the beginning of this new year, not only as a way of reminding ourselves of these commitments, but as a way of re-engaging our hearts in the effort. In the past two weeks, we've looked at God-centered community, or Christ-centered community, rather, and God-centered worship. And this morning, we're talking about preaching itself and what specific commitments we have made as a church family when it comes to that important part of our church life. Compared with other branches of Christianity, Protestant denominations typically put a lot of emphasis on preaching, and Westgate Church is no exception. It is the thing that I devote most of my time and effort to, and that's not because things like counseling and administrative responsibilities are not important. It's because we believe that the Bible is central. So, preaching that illuminates the Bible and brings it to bear on our lives is one of our highest priorities. Just as it has been for most Protestant traditions over the last five centuries. In fact, the heart of the Protestant Reformation was this, this question about how much priority the Bible is given in our lives, our traditions, and in our time together. And the reason that the Reformers were willing to fight and even to die to see Scripture raised to its prominent place was because of passages like the one that we are looking at this morning, in which Paul tells his friend Timothy to persevere in his calling and to proclaim the truth of Scripture because it is precious and it changes the lives of God's people. 2 Timothy is a letter from Paul, who is a veteran pastor and missionary, to his friend and apprentice, a young pastor named Timothy. It's full of encouragement and instruction, since there is a lot that Timothy needs to know about the work that is before him. But this passage is really at the heart of the book. It is the most important thing that Paul has to tell Timothy, and I'm not just guessing about that. There is no other imperative in any, of other, in any of Paul's other letters that is introduced with anything like the rhetorical weightiness and solemnity that he uses in the first verse of chapter 4. It would be like going to a really great college class, being taught by the foremost expert in your field who literally wrote the book on the topic that you're studying, and all semester long you are taking notes just as fast as you possibly can because you are amazed at how brilliant and wise your professor is. But then one day, in the middle of a lecture, your professor pauses and says, listen up, if you only learn one thing this semester, if you only ever learn one thing from me, make sure it is what I'm about to tell you, because this is the most important thing that I have to teach you this semester. You would make sure that you were paying close attention. You would write it down word for word. Paul is trying to get Timothy's attention like that. This is something to take to heart, and it boils down to three main points. First, in verses 14 through 17, Paul reminds Timothy to treasure the Word. Then, in the first two verses of chapter 4, Timothy is instructed to preach the Word. And then, in verses 3 through 5, Paul encourages Timothy to abide in the Word, even when it is tempting to lay it aside. Treasure the Word, preach the Word, abide in the Word. For a young man learning what it means to lead in the church, there is literally nothing more important than that. Paul starts in verses 14 through 17 by explaining to Timothy that Scripture is precious, and it is Timothy's own past that demonstrates why. In Acts 16, when we are first introduced to Timothy, we read that he is the son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother 
who had become a Christian. And evidently, this woman was an absolute titan of faith who ensured that her son, even though he was growing up in a place that was not predominantly Christian, far from it, in fact, in in a household that was not even predominantly Christian, would hear about Jesus. And we know that from what Paul writes here, she did that primarily by teaching him the Bible. At that time, that meant reading the Old Testament, maybe some fragments of gospel letters that had reached her since most of the New Testament was still being written at the time. But she had grown up with the Hebrew Scriptures, and she knew that they were united by a promise from God to send His people a deliverer who would save them from sin and from His own righteous judgment against it. She knew that promise by heart, and she believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of that promise. So Paul writes to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. It's as if he's saying, you know, Timothy, you know firsthand the transforming and nourishing power of Scripture. Hold fast to it because you know how valuable it is. Not everyone, we know that not everyone who reads the Bible feels that way about it. I took a class in college called The Bible as Literature, and it was an interesting experience. My professor let us know on the first day of class that she was an atheist, but that she found great beauty in ancient texts like those found in the Bible, that they are uh, literary masterpieces. And as the semester progressed, I was amazed that she didn't just have a passing knowledge of Scripture. She knew it very well, and she had large sections of it down by heart. But for her, it was merely an academic exercise, reading and studying these ancient texts. Not so with Timothy. Paul encourages him to continue in what you have not only learned, but also have firmly believed. Timothy has been affected by Scripture. The truth of these words, the beauty of these texts, has moved from his head, the intellectual space, to his heart, where they have affected his life. But Paul's encouragement to continue in these things implies what the end of the passage will make clear, that there is a temptation to lay aside Scripture or dismiss it altogether. Paul wants Timothy to cling to what he's been taught since childhood by his fiercely determined mother. In fact, the word translated childhood here in the ESV that I'm reading from this morning is elsewhere translated as infancy or even life inside the womb. Modern scientific studies tell us that babies learn to recognize the voice of their mother inside, their, inside the womb. So there's a good chance that from the very moment that Timothy's ears were formed, they were filled with the sound of his mother's voice reading him the words of Scripture because she knew the power of the word that Timothy would only later discover, that it is able to make you wise for salvation. It is the means by which God brings people to recognize their need for and then ultimately receive the forgiveness of God in Christ. Scripture is the light that shines on sin, and it is the glimpse of the holiness of God that then makes us tremble as we saw last week in Isaiah chapter 6. And it is the announcement that God, in mercy, has made salvation for us in the death and resurrection of His Son. Scripture is not only what explains this gospel message, but over time leads to joy in the gospel itself and less joy in sin. 
It is the Word that does this work of transforming the lives of God's people because we read in verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The best we can tell, Paul invented this word that we have translated in our Bibles as God-breathed. Now, it shows up in other writing after 2 Timothy was written, but nowhere before that. So, it seems like as Paul was thinking about how to explain where Scripture comes from, he had to invent a new word to get at exactly what he was trying to communicate, that it has been breathed out by God. In the same way that he breathed life into Adam and Eve when he formed them, so he breathes out the word that leads people to new life in Christ. Paul wants Timothy to treasure the word, the scripture that he's been hearing throughout his life, because it is the tool that God uses not only to bring his people to saving faith in the gospel, but then to form them into men and women of righteous character whose lives reflect the very Son of God who has saved them. The, the problem that Paul is anticipating here is that sometimes precious things are trivialized. There was a great example of this in a story I saw in the news about a family who was cleaning out their mother's house in France. It was an old house, and it was full of old stuff that this family had no use for, and so they were just filling up trash cans with stuff that they had no, uh, no use for and couldn't sell or give away. And it just odds and ends endlessly in this house. And they had an antique dealer come over to the house to look at a piece of furniture. And as he's walking through the house to look at this piece of furniture, he notices a small painting that's hanging above the stove in the kitchen. And he encouraged the family to have it checked out. Maybe it was worth something. And a year later, after that painting was examined, it was realized that it was a 13th century masterpiece and it sold at auction for 24 million euros. Sometimes there's treasure right under our nose, and we don't even know it. Paul wants Timothy to recognize that Scripture, the Bible that he holds in his hands, is the most valuable thing that he will ever lay his hands on. Even though he's been hearing, hearing it read and he's been reading it himself his whole life, and there will be times when it feels common and familiar and even trivial, it is anything but. It is so valuable that Peter who was one of three people on planet earth to witness the transfiguration of Jesus Christ when the heavenly glory of Christ was revealed and the voice of his Father boomed out declaring his love for the Son, when the promises of God's appointed deliverer were confirmed to be kept in Jesus Christ himself, Peter, who was there to witness this absolutely magnificent moment in salvation history, would later write, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention. He's talking specifically about the transfiguration and the fact that he saw it, and then he says, but we have the prophetic word, Scripture, more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention. The Bible is of more help to us than if we had been there to see it with our own eyes because it is more trustworthy than our own eyes are. It is able to make us more wise for salvation than if we had witnessed Jesus' life firsthand. Yet how often do we think of it as a chore? Something we know we ought to spend more time on and with, but which is often the first thing to go when our schedule gets busy or even just when there's a show on Netflix I want to get caught up on. 
It is the treasure of immense, unimaginable worth that is so easily neglected. It is breathed out by God, and it teaches and confronts and corrects and trains His people to become men and women of godly character and righteousness. God's Word does this work. So, Timothy's ministry will not only suffer but crumble entirely if Scripture is not central to it. And that is why, beginning in chapter 4, Paul urges his friend to lead out of this conviction to preach the Word. But before he says that, he makes sure that Timothy understands the significance of this instruction. I charge you, he says in chapter 4, verse 1, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. This is not an, oh, by the way, type of thing. It's not like Paul is giving Timothy a to-do list of ministry things that he needs to take care of, and this item falls somewhere on that list in between balance the budget and make sure the, the doors are locked when you leave the church building. This is the most important thing that Timothy will do in serving the church. There is nothing like this in anywhere else in Paul's writing. Nothing like this sort of get your attention, pay attention, because this solemn and serious thing that I'm about to tell you is being charged to, to you in the presence of God the Father and His Son, and I'm reminding you that that Son will judge the living and the dead. What Paul has to say here is a matter of life and death and eternal consequence, even though on an average Sunday morning, it may not seem like it, because Scripture is what the Holy Spirit uses to reveal the truth of the life-saving gospel and to help us cling to it. So, the most important thing that Timothy must do as he ministers to the church in Ephesus is to preach the Word, to put God's Word before God's people and reprove, rebuke, exhort, and teach with all patience. Since it is able to make people wise for salvation, it is what people need more than anything else. Paul doesn't say, be encouraging, tell people how to have a better life or a better marriage or more obedient children. He doesn't tell them to be relevant or authentic or charismatic or to co-opt whatever ideological problem is popular today or whatever will get a good crowd to gather in the church. He says, preach the Word when it is celebrated by broader culture and when it is rejected, when crowds show up hungry to hear it and when there is one family in the pew when social values conform to its content and when they don't, when it is comforting and when it pierces your heart, when it makes you feel good and builds you up, and when it doesn't and it humbles you, preach the Word. In season and out of season, preach the Word. Because the Word of God does the work of God and nothing else that you have to give these people can. There's a popular quote that I've heard over the years, and maybe you have too, that Christians should preach the gospel always, and when necessary, use words. The idea is that Christians should be so conformed to the likeness of Christ that our lives are a testimony to the transforming power of the gospel, that in our disposition, our worldview, world our selflessness, our friendships with people, in all these things, Christ would be so evident that people would be convicted and interested in hearing more about who He is and what He's done. There's a kernel of wisdom in this, in this phrase, this saying, in the encouragement to live in a way that Christ-likeness is evident to the people around you. But Paul tells Timothy to preach, and that word demands speech. 
The same word is elsewhere translated as declare or proclaim. It's not enough to simply be a righteous and godly and kind person if there is no declaration of God and the gospel that has made people that way. But it is more than declaring. It's more than proclaiming something because Paul specifies that preaching involves reproving, rebuking, exhorting, and teaching. That's an enormous amount of responsibility and authority for a preacher to have. And it could go wrong in one of two ways. The first is if the preacher thinks too highly of himself. He might say to himself, well, it's a good thing I'm here. I have a lot of wisdom, and these people, man, they really need it. So it's good that they're here to listen to what I have to say. That preacher challenges and confronts and calls people according to his own vision and his own wisdom. But another preacher might look at these lists of responsibilities to reprove, rebuke, exhort, and teach and think, what in the world do I have to offer these people? Who am I? Just some guy trying to figure it out just like they are. I'm not any more qualified than they are to tell them how to live their lives. Both of these pa pastors will make a wreck of the churches that they lead because both of them are thinking only of what they have to give the people who are sitting in front of them. But Paul protects Timothy from both of those pitfalls because it is not the pastor's wisdom that these people need. It is the wisdom of Scripture that these people need. It isn't the pastor's gospel that they need. It is the gospel of Christ preserved in Scripture that will save them. So the pastor with a big ego is knocked down a peg and the terrified pastor is encouraged and built up as they both reflect on the fact that what the church needs is God's voice, not theirs. This is what all people need, and I'll include here as an aside, pastors included. To hear the word faithfully proclaimed week after week by preachers whose only goal is to bring it to bear on our lives. That's one of the reasons why I'm very thankful for the team leadership structure that we have here at Westgate, because as a pastor, I too need to sit under good preaching just like all of you do. I need a faithful brother to proclaim this truth to me just like you do. And every other week, that's exactly what I get to do. This is a central feature of how God has willed to instruct and raise up His people through the preaching of the Word. That doesn't mean, of course, that we won't be tempted to get creative, to think outside the box about this instruction that Paul is giving to Timothy and all pastors. The reason that Paul gives such a somber and stern introduction to preach the Word is that he knows how tempting it will be to give it up. Specifically, the temptation to avoid certain parts of Scripture or the whole thing entirely because it will drive people away. So these final three verses of this passage we're looking at this morning are a call to abide in the Word. He warns Timothy in verse 3 that a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. I don't think Paul is being a pessimist here. I don't think he's just a glass-half-empty kind of sad sack who's just saying, this is going to be really hard. I think he's being realistic about the fact that the Bible will offend, it will confront, it will convict, and it will challenge us, and people will not like that. Because everyone would rather be praised than corrected. Everyone would rather hear that we are all awesome than to hear that we are so deeply, irreversibly flawed that God's wrath has been stoked against us, even if 
That news is followed by the good news that He loves us anyway. Paul knows that some people will not keep showing up because that is not what they want to hear. They'll go seeking teachers that will scratch their itch and tell them things that are in accord with their passion. And seeing smaller and smaller attendance week after week, Timothy might wonder what he could do to turn things around. It's a temptation that all preachers face. Paul is telling Timothy, though, ahead of time, it won't work. That will not work. America is full of churches that have gradually moved away from talking about the severity of sin and the holy wrath of God over the last 50, 60, 70, 80 years. It's not hard to understand why, because nobody likes being told that they are a sinner who deserves the wrath of an angry and just God. But those churches haven't grown over the past half century. They are empty. Every single major denomination that has moved away from talking about the reality of sin and the holiness of God has absolutely hemorrhaged people. The data on this is sobering. We need to remember and hear from pulpits like this one that sin really is wicked and that God's wrath is real and that the gospel is a life-saving mercy even if it's hard to hear. Because our attempts to make it more palatable, to chip off those rough edges and conform a little bit more to the sensibilities of the modern culture, whatever, won't work. They will turn away, Paul says in verse 5, from listening to the truth. They will wander off into myths. They will go looking for teachers who will tell them what they already wanted to hear, regardless of whether or not it is true, because the truth is not as important as scratching their itchy ears. So Paul is telling Timothy, even though you will be tempted to change course, to avoid things that will challenge people or confront people, it won't work. People will remain lost, and eventually the gospel itself will be lost too. So he says, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, take the work seriously, accept that it will not make you popular and it may even result in suffering. He says, do the work of an evangelist, which I take to mean rather than abandoning Scripture to get people to come, persuade people that Scripture is worth listening to, even though it will be hard. Abide in the Word. Hold fast to it because it is worth it. There are times and places where it is harder to do what Paul is instructing Timothy to do here. Paul is writing this letter from a Roman prison cell, and he knows that his own execution is not far off. This is the last thing he wrote, this letter, the last thing that we have anyway, and it's the last correspondence between these two friends. Paul has paid a price for preaching the Word. It cost him everything. He's been persecuted, abused, imprisoned, and will soon lose his life. And as the shadow of his own death sentence looms over him, this is what he has to say to a young man preparing to follow in his footsteps. Preach the Word. It will be dangerous for Timothy, maybe even more so than it was for Paul. He will be tempted to quit because the work is hard, but it is worth it because God's Word is precious and it changes lives. 
That is our conviction here at Westgate Church, and it has certainly shaped our habits as a church family in several ways. First and foremost, we make preaching a priority. Whether it's a member of the pastoral staff or an elder or someone else who's been invited to share this pulpit, we give ourselves to the work of study and preparation and writing and exposition of God's Word. We believe what we've already heard this morning from the choir anthem from Psalm 1 and the call to worship from Psalm 119 about the significance of Scripture and the ways that God is at work in our lives through it. So we have devoted our lives to it. Secondly, we aim to preach from all of Scripture because we believe what this passage says about the fact that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful. That means we aim to spend as much time in the Old Testament as we do in the New Testament and in each of the various biblical genres. We believe that the words of the book of Numbers are as instructive and nourishing to us as the Gospels. And it is also why we typically preach through larger sections or even entire books over the course of months or years. We want to mine the depths of the wisdom that Scripture offers us. Third, we preach with the aim to change hearts and minds because we believe that Scripture has the power to do that. We are not here just to explain things. Wikipedia and your study Bible are better at that than we are. Even though explaining things like historical or literary context or linguistic details or other things like that is part of this work, preachers hope to bring the words of Scripture to bear on our lives in such a way that we are changed by it, and that our disposition toward God is one of worship. Whether someone has been a Christian for 70 years or is hearing the gospel for the first time this morning, the objective of this moment that we share together is a life of joyful praise to the God who saves. Fourth, we preach in a way that elevates the wisdom of Scripture, not the wisdom of the preacher. And to do that, we do what's called biblical exposition. It's a philosophy of preaching or a, or a, a, a strategy of preaching, I guess. Our goal is not to come up with something clever and then go looking for Bible passages that will back it up. Instead, the structure and themes and main ideas of our sermons are dictated by the structure and themes and main ideas of whatever text it is that we're preaching on, because my ideas are irrelevant and unhelpful to you, but Scripture makes us wise for salvation. So our core commitment about preaching says this, it'll be on the screen behind me. God's Word is the lifeblood and foundation of the church. Our greatest need is to hear from Him. You cannot treasure someone that you do not know, and you are not treasuring them if you do not listen carefully when they speak. Therefore, we place significant weight on gathering around and under the preaching of God's Word. We make it our aim to preach from the whole counsel of, both, the whole counsel of God, both Old and New Testaments, in such a way that the message and aim of the sermon are driven by the message and aim of the biblical passage being preached. This is what's called biblical exposition. Whenever God's Word is declared from the pulpit, that message should be faithful to Scripture, obvious from it, and centered on Christ, and brought to bear on daily life in a clear and compelling way. As we close this morning, maybe you're thinking, cool, that sounds great, but what difference does it make for me uh, if I'm not a preacher? And that's a reasonable question for you to ask, but let me suggest three really quick ways that this makes a difference in your life. First, I hope that this passage from 2 Timothy 
and our core commitment of biblical exposition here at Westgate Church informs your prayers for your pastors and elders, that we would hear the words of this passage in 2 Timothy, that we would treasure Scripture, preach Scripture, and abide in Scripture. This is the work that we've been called to, and so we're asking that you would pray that God keeps us faithful to it and fruitful in it for your good and His glory. Secondly, I hope that this passage and our commitment to biblical exposition shapes your heart toward preaching and deepens your affections for Scripture. Whether it's here at Westgate or somewhere else, don't settle, do not settle for clever, charismatic, or polished preaching if it is devoid of Scripture, because Scripture is able to make you wise for salvation, and nothing else is. Thirdly, I hope that this passage in 2 Timothy and our commitment to biblical exposition at Westgate Church affects the way that you think about whatever ministry you have been called to, whether or not you stand in this pulpit or not. Because even if you aren't preaching from a pulpit on a Sunday morning, your life is preaching something all the time. In the way you raise your children and in what you teach them, in the way you participate in your workplace culture and in the friendships that you form there, in the way that you get to know your neighbors and in the way you participate in the fellowship of God's people here at Westgate, every day you make a million choices about what to give the world around you. But there is one thing that the world needs most from you. So preach the word. Bring the truth of God's Word to bear on the lives of the people around you. Be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Even when it's hard and you are tempted to quit, preach the Word because it is precious and it changes people's lives. Let's pray together. Father God, we ask that you would help us this morning to see how precious your word is. Help us to treasure it. You have spoken to us in Scripture. You have reminded us that this word is more trustworthy than our own eyes, so we ask that you would help us to treasure it, to know it, and to abide in it, and to bring it to the world around us. May sermons here at Westgate edify your people and bring glory to you by faithfulness to your word. May it be at work in us, raising us up, and making us people whose lives reflect the righteous character and compassion of our Savior. We pray these things, Lord, in His name.